You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 032, where I continue my conversation with Mark Malik, the founder of Conquest Capital Group. This episode is sponsored by Swiss Financial Services. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. within the different risk environments and so on. Mm. So you have these four strategies with inside the uh, the macro program. Are you able to kind of visualize and talk just briefly a little bit about what, you know, how each of them, what they do, uh, so to speak, just to make it sort of maybe simplified a little bit? Well, like I said, in, in the sense of in, the, in looking at sort of our long vol component. Right. I mean, all trades that we do, are you know in the case of conquest macro we have about you know 35 different markets or so okay uh, and in each one of those we're looking to in each one of those risk buckets we're looking to extract a certain profile in the market mm-hmm. um, the way I think of the way these strategies interact is essentially at the root of get us started into a, a different okay. Uh, topic okay but in a nutshell, I mean, I think historically, trends trends used to happen. Well, trends happen because information comes out at different times right. and causes market to move. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go back in history, you know, 20 years or so, information came out very slowly. Different people got it at different times and reacted to, to it at different times and created the trends that created. Um, I think... As we, and that was great for long-term trend following. Um, I think as we got to the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, with the advent of uh, the technological revolution, mm. uh, with the telecom revolution, with all the advances that we've made on the internet and so on, the effect of that on the market is that it caused the way markets to move to go from a much more sort of continuous function where it was somewhat of a smooth movement over time that was based on different people getting their information at different time and reacting to it at different time Mm. to an environment where pretty much everyone that wants any kind of information gets it at the same time and reacts to it at the same time. Sure. So visually, if you want to think about it, think of about, let's say a market is going up. Mm. And it's going from point A to point B. In the old regime, it would go from point A to point B in in a nice upward sloping, you know, smooth curve. Right. In the new risk regime, it replaced that with more like a step function mm-hmm. where the market goes, you know, into a flat period where nothing is going on. And news comes out, everyone reacts to it at the same time. It causes a big jump, mm. which is that up part of the step. Mm. Uh, by the time everybody reacts and the market absorbs that reaction, it flattens up again until you get the next news event, which again will cause it to almost gap 
either up or down and then stay there and continue. It's not really gapping in the sure, type sure. of markets that we trade, sure. but a very sharp move. Now, the way what we try to do is they say we're looking, we're still looking at the same shorter. I mean, the average holding period in Conquest Macro is about you know six seven days. Yeah. So we're still kind of looking at the same movement from point A to point B, but we're trying to capture it through the different activities that cause that movement. Mm -hmm. So in the part that is flat, obviously there is nothing you want to do. You you want to try to be out of the market. I say, if you think of it as a staircase, Mm. in the flat part of the staircase, you you really don't want to do much there. On the spike up, when, when that news event happened and causes the market to spike up on the top part of the stair, what you want to do is you want your long volatility component to come in and capture that expansion in volatility. Mm. Now, that's how we capture that. Now, while that's happening, there are some counter trend moves that happen in the market sometimes. Mm. So we try to capture those with our counter trend strategies. I mean, in that case, let's say, instead of the steps continuously going up, sure. you can have three steps up, then two down, then, then another three up. Right. Uh, so we have, uh, and again, radio probably would be a lot easier to explain this with uh, a board and some uh, and some charts but you want to buy but the dips in an uptrend or you want to sell the the spikes in a downtrend both yeah uh that's i mean that's essentially what um, how we try to achieve the returns that we do yeah which is you know we have you know uh, over 75 different models with you know decent not high correlation to each other. Yeah. Uh, each one is trying to do different things. So there are we we rarely try to. I mean, whenever we try to buy the dip in a market, we do it in a way with a very tight stop because mm. overall we don't want to take away from our profile of being long volatility. Right. But you can buy that dip in a combination of ways, either through taking profit on existing position. <clears throat> or establishing a new position with a very tight stop if the dip is at an interesting point in a trend development and so on. But essentially, we start with what we believe is kind of the the blueprint of how markets move. Mm. And then we try to create different models that take advantage of the different parts of that movement. Yeah. Let Let me ask you something well, maybe you get a, a, a sip of water uh, because you're doing most of the talking today. But let me ask you a slightly different question. Uh, when I hear you talk about this, clearly what you've built is uh, a complex system, if I can call it that, with lots of models, lots of moving parts. And in my own personal experience, we've certainly tried to build short-term systems and using many different market model combinations. But what we found in our research was actually that the more models, even though they were lowly correlated and or negatively correlated, but the more of these things we threw into the overall program, it didn't actually help us a great deal. And that sometimes simplicity is not a bad thing. How do you view that? How do you, or let me put it this way, how do you balance the complex versus the simple very simple. I mean, each model by itself is actually not that complex. Right. Um, you know, there are uh, there are a couple of ways you can build trading models. You can 
do what I call the trolling approach, <laughs> which is you create, you, you know, you test different algorithms mm -hmm. and trading strategies and whatever works, works, and then you use it. And you use it until it stops working and then you stop using it. A lot of people do this. There is absolutely, you know, nothing wrong with that approach. People look for pattern recognition all the time in the market and try to take advantage of those patterns. Mm. My problem with that approach is if I don't know why it's working, I will not know when it will stop working and might end up really overstaying my welcome in that strategy. Mm. So we use a slightly different approach to strategy building or model building, mm. which is that if you, can't, if you can't explain it in English <laughs> uh, you know, to a reasonably intelligent person, and have them get the idea of why it works, then we don't really want it. Mm. Um, and then, you know, for each model that we have, we have what I call sort of uh, diagnose. We've identified over 60 different uh, statistical variables that we use as diagnostics um, for each model on a daily basis. And then we look at obviously, you know, the one week, the one month, and so on to make sure that the model is still. Uh, behaving in the same way that we expect it to. Mm. However, like you very correctly said, if you come up with 100 different models that do all these different things, you throw them together, at best you're going to end up with zero return <laughs> a lot of the time. You end up really hurting yourself in some cases. Sure. Uh, and because for a couple of reasons. One is if you add a lot of complexity in a model, you're probably overfitting and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And if you have... Too many different models just kind of dilute your returns, basically. Mm. You end up, you know, spending a lot of money uh, making your brokers rich. <laughs> um, so the way that we've gotten around that problem is by not always allocating to all these different models. So what we have is we have a lot of different models that do different things. But because of our reliance on the risk environment and various other factors, what we do is we're constantly turning on and off models based on our read of the market conditions in which they work or not work. Or right. not work. right. Uh, so, um, yes, you're correct. If you do, if you just throw a, bunch, a lot of models in, very complex models, you're going to eat away your return and have negative expectation from that addition. But that's not what we do. Right. And, but, and let me just ask you a thought about this. You know, I don't know whether you have an opinion about it. I think it's important for, for the listeners to understand because clearly a lot of people are really trying to grasp, you know, uh, what you do, but but also generally speaking about these type of of uh, systematic approaches. And and here's the thing: you can build, you can come up with say 50 different market model combinations, and each of them look good and have a decent risk return profile. And you know, for all things being equal, if you put them together, you should get on paper it looks stable and robust. But I think what people need to understand is that what can happen is that you're talking about, say, in this case, 50 different return streams and 50 different streams of trades that are either going to be profitable or unprofitable. But, but what can happen, which we don't know, is that in the future, the way these trades occur can happen so that you get a concentration of losing trades just happening at the same time. And that's where the drawdown comes from. It's not necessarily that the models themselves are bad or have changed, 
but it's just the way that the returns or the trades come along and you get a concentration of losing trades and therefore your that's where your drawdown comes from is that a fair way of describing the um, how these things uh, can can oh yeah absolutely absolutely but i mean you know uh, before we add any model uh, to our portfolio um, it goes through very rigorous checks of simulating different market condition what trades at the extremes how big it's going to make you know our positions vis-a-vis the other models that we have so we try to do as much of that work um, as we can beforehand mm. but even then you know markets have a way to surprise you so even then what we do is on a portfolio basis then we have um, different sets of risk management tools that will make sure that we never go above um, the you know the max position in any one sector or market whatever that we want mm. Yeah. So, you know, we try to capture it both from the construction, but then also from, you know, the, the overall portfolio side. Mm. And is the macro program, I, I guess it's an intraday program in the sense that your short term trading does rely on continuous data and, 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 and being able to react at any point in time or, or are you yes. able to, okay, okay. Yes, no, we trade, um, we continuously trade, you know, throughout the day and the night. Okay. Um, I want to jump to another section, which uh, is more on the topic of risk management, because, you know, one thing is to put the models together. The other thing is to 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 manage the risk. And you just mentioned you have some limits for, for each of the things. But but let me ask you more broadly, how, how, you know, how do you define risk? What, what is risk in, in your view? Um, and what should the investors be looking at? Because... I think you've alluded to this, uh, and that is that that you know maybe a lot of people look at a certain risk number and they feel good about it because oh you know the value value at risk is such and such. But what they don't realize is that value at risk changes, and when it really gets into hot water in the markets, uh, value at risk is not very useful. So how do you deal with that? I mean, probably I think value at risk is the worst thing that happened to markets <laughs> because it gives uh, managers or investors a false sense of understanding of the risk. Right. So I didn't uh, I didn't overstate that then. <laughs> you no, know, no, absolutely not. I mean, look, um, I look at risk in a couple of ways. Um, I look at risk in terms of upside deviation versus downside deviation in our portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look at it in terms of our max expected drawdown. Mm-hmm. And I look at it, you know, in terms of what could happen given various different movement scenario based on the individual volatility of a given market and the correlation to the other markets that we have to the portfolio and the, when we have a max position. So you want to look at individual position, then you want to look at the correlation of these position because it's one thing to, to limit, you know, one market, but in there are one thing we know, I mean, correlation, again, uh, is one of, I think, the most misunderstood statistics out there. <laughs> Uh, you have a lot of people kind of hate looking at correlation because they think it's unreliable uh, because correlations break all the time. Right. But again, what we found is that actually correlation, when you look at it the right way, is one of the best sort of stats that uh, you can measure in terms of fidelity. The problem is that people look at correlation 
across a variety of risk environments. Right. Um, so when you look at a 10-year correlation over a 10-year period of, let's say, a couple of markets to each other now, over that 10-year period, it's a constant ebb and flow between risk-seeking periods and risk-averse periods. Mm. And what happened is that correlation of, let's say, those two markets that you're looking at is very different in risk-seeking periods than it is in risk-averse periods. Mm. Uh, and again, to use the example we spoke about earlier, between strategies, let's say, that rely a lot on liquidity, what happens to it when, when liquidity disappears versus one that, you know, not as much. So what we found is that if you actually um, look at correlation, you know, break it down from, let's say, looking at a 10-year period, over that 10-year period, instead of looking at the overall correlation, you look at the correlation in risk-seeking periods, and then you look at the correlation in risk-averse periods, you get a much more accurate and a much more predictable and much more sort of uh, true measure of correlation. Yeah. So what we do is we not only look at an overall number of correlation, we subject all these tests to, again, further tests, looking at them in different risk environment and so on. Uh, but again, the, the only thing that we can control um, in, in that whole equation is how much risk we're willing to take. Mm. We can't control the return side of the equation because, you know, depending on what the market gives us, is you know how much we can you know dep- how much we try to return based on the strategies that we have um, that we have. So you know we try to minimize the max drawdown, obviously to a point um, that again, I mean roughly back of the envelope calculation. I think a reasonable expectation. Um, is what I call kind of 15% return, 15% vol, 15% drawdown, max drawdown. Right. Um, I think that is a good um, guideline over, you know, if you kind of look at different windows, those numbers can vary. But looking at a long enough period, I think that would be a good sort of record to have. Yeah. Oh, no, that would be a terrific record. I think most uh, trend followers would be envious if they could uh, yeah. keep I that. Mean, again, I mean, yeah. it's uh, just to make sure that everybody understands, this is not for trend following. Yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. This sure, is sure. for Conquest Macro, sure. which is sort of our 2 and 20 product and not the yeah. uh, the trend follower, which is the one and oh. So sure. in the case of Conquest Macro, we really do um, try to provide some alpha Sure. That, you know, it's very different than sort of simple trend following. Sure. Do you look at loss to stop uh, as, as a measure? Uh, and, and, I, and I'm asking this because I'm assuming you use stops for your trades, but I'm not even sure because I didn't ask oh, you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, we, for, for every trade that we do, yeah. um, we have a stop associated with that trade. Okay. And uh, in a significant number of our trades, we also have uh, take profits sure. based on price level. We have time stops. We have stops based on volatility. Um, so we use stops not just as losing sort of technique right, where right. you know you limit your losses, sure. but we also use them a lot to uh, as take profits and vol stops and uh, time stops and so on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think personally, I I find that looking on. 
uh, on a daily basis that you know what's the worst that could happen if everything got stopped out today is is a good measure of risk as well uh, and I also I'm not a, a big fan of the valued risk but I think also I think it's worth pointing out to to the audience that when looking at managers and using your analogy about you know correlation and risk seeking and and so on and so forth I think what investors should really pay attention to is to actually look at the correlation in managers in negative month and in positive month and not look at just correlation in overall month because that doesn't really say anything in my opinion. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and look also, you know, when looking at um, some of these stop losses, I mean, yes, um, you know, you want to look at what happens if every position that you have stopped out on that day, except that sometimes um, in cases where markets are negatively correlated. Let's say you take a simple example of, um, you know, your your long bonds and um, let's say your long bonds and long stocks. Mm. You know, those are trades that are working in a way in most of the time <laughs> end up working in different directions. So sure. the probability of you getting stopped out on both on the same day tend to be fairly remote. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I wasn't actually thinking about the probability as such. Just, you know, people should be comfortable when I think investors should be comfortable with, you know, what could happen if, if my manager got stopped out of everything, regardless of, uh, you know, whether well, it was up or down. But it's not, uh, you know, it can it can also, you know, it, 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 insofar as um, your tolerance for the stop is going to affect your position size and your risk taking and you, you want you know, you want to be very conservative in how you measure the risk, but there is such a thing as being kind of overly or unrealistically conservative in the sure. sense that, again, you know, one of the thing, one of the reasons why, you know, uh, I hate value at risk <laughs> uh, is that it automatically assumes sort of, you know, a blind uh, approach of shocking the portfolio on a four, let's say you're looking at a 3% move or a 4% move or so on. Well, you know, for very long-term strategies, maybe that works. In our case, you know, our stops are, you know, within usually half a standard deviation, a standard deviation. So, you know, by the time the market moves three, four percent or three, four SDs, we are long gone out of our position. So it's mm. a completely irrelevant number. So when somebody kind of, you know, looks at a snapshot of our portfolio and brings me a VAR number based on a three SD move, it's completely ridiculous. You know, mm. it's meaningless because we trade only the most liquid markets in the world. So the probability of you know, a gap in any of our markets is almost non-existent. Matter of fact, you know, it, uh, I, I don't remember sure. it ever happening since we traded. Um, so we, given that our stops are within, start within kind of half SD of where we are and probably end at one SD, uh, why am I looking at the losses on the full position from the one to the three SD mark? Yeah. So you want to be very conscious of your risk and and uh, you know all different you know on position size on you know everything getting stopped out but you also want to do it with somewhat of a common sense approach sure no that's true i want to jump to um i've got a couple of sections left uh, that i want to uh, to talk to you about and we're not going to go into every single question because we uh, you know, we want to sort of keep time to a, to a certain uh, level at least. But I want to talk a little bit about drawdowns. And, you know, often investors get very uncomfortable 
during drawdowns. Um, and it often causes them to redeem, you know, probably very close to the worst drawdown of, of any manager. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about how do you as a manager, when you look at your drawdowns, how do you know if something more fundamentally has changed and therefore you need to adopt uh, you know, or adapt maybe is the right word, uh, your strategy. Uh, because what we've seen, uh, certainly in the trend-following space, is that since 2009, uh, even strategies that have been doing well uh, with a certain drawdown profile for 10, 20, even 30 years, suddenly the drawdown profile has changed uh, in the last few years and many people have recorded larger drawdowns uh, than, than they have uh, prior to that. Um, so how do, how do you view well, that? A, a couple of things. I mean, first, there really is nothing new about what's happening now in a big picture than what happened before. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know, the way a max drawdown happened is... I mean, it's going to sound stupid when I say it, but it's because you made a worse drawdown than the last one. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, that's sort of uh, at any point. I mean, if you go back to a lot of these strategies prior to, uh, you know, 2009, you will see a point in which, you know, they made a drawdown. Then they rallied, made a lot of money, and then they probably made a worse drawdown. So they hit a new low in their drawdown, but they came back and made more money. And now they hit, you know, maybe another lower low in their drawdown. And my view is they will come back and make money because fundamentally, I don't think anything has fundamentally shifted in the way markets work. I mean, we have have seen a temporary shift, which is in this overly active intervention (laughs) of the Fed in the market. Sure. Uh, But this is, you know, in a way... What they're doing is not new because the Fed always intervenes in the market, you know, all the way from kind of the open intervention when they try to manipulate currency markets uh, by intervening in the currency market to changes in interest rate, which really is, you know, part of their mandate, but it's still an intervention. Mm. Uh, what they did this time is they took it to a new extreme. Right. It's not, it's not unexpected that that new extreme caused you know, a corresponding new extreme in strategies that, you know, don't benefit from these interventions. But, you know, at least in the U.S., we are seeing the beginning of the unwind of um, that sort of very, uh, sure. that level of activity on the on the side of the Fed. Uh, so, you know, I have ex- every expectation that, I mean, my own personal view is, you know, we've really, rather than try to solve the problem that, caused 2008 here and in Europe, we've tried to throw a lot of money at the problem. We haven't fixed any of the problem, but now we're short all that money that we threw away at it, mm-hmm. and we're still left with a bigger problem. Yeah. Uh, so my own expectation, I think, you know, trend followers are going to come back and actually have probably a much better year than they've ever had before, should be commensurate with having a worse drawdown than they ever had before. Yeah. Now, that's not, you know, maybe that's part of the question you asked, but let me mm-hmm. answer of how we deal with this in Conquest Micro. Um, for every model that we build, and then that model becomes part of a sub-strategy. So, and then for every sub-strategy that we have, and then that sub-strategy becomes part of the portfolio, and then for our portfolio, what we do is, what I mentioned earlier, is we've identified 
um, you know, over 60 different statistics that we use them as almost like diagnostics. So what we do is, I don't know, take, um, you know, I don't know, a number of winning trades or losing trades, any one of those stats, let's say. What you do is you run, you make sort of, you have a running total of these stats. You build the distribution for these stats. Then on an each day, on each day, you go and look at, you calculate that number for that day and you see if it fits within the distribution. Mm. Now, in addition to that, what we do is for every model that we build, and again, for the sub-strategy, the strategy, the portfolio, we build a beta version of it. So what's a beta version? So for example, uh, let's say I have you know, um, a short-term trend-following model in Conquest Macro that has a seven-day average duration. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that something as simple as a five-day breakout strategy, right. roughly if you want, kind of the formula between holding period and end day breakout is that for an end day breakout, it's going to have a holding period of 1.5 N. Mm-hmm. So roughly a five day breakout is going to have a seven and a half day uh, holding period. Right. So really the beta of my macro short term trend following model is going to be a five day breakout. Uh, on exactly the same market in the same proportion. Yeah. So, so let's go back now and say, okay, well, when I look at, uh, on a daily basis, I look at these diagnostics for every model that we have and sub-strategy and portfolio and so on. Now, when you're looking at over 60 different stats, the chances are that any given day, you're going to get a few of these stats that are falling outside of the distribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really nothing unusual because that's how distributions get built. Right. Now, where I start to worry is if a cluster of the stats start to break, if, if a very large number of these stats start breaking. Mm. Now, mind you, right now, I'm not looking at any return, whether it's making money or losing money. We're not sure. even looking at any of this. We're sure. just looking at the stats. Yeah. And, and these stats can break both because it's making too much money or losing too much money or not making any money. Mm. Now, once we've determined that uh, model is behaving differently than our expectation based on those diagnostics. Mm. The first thing we do is we go to the beta version of that model. Say, well, what is the beta doing? Mm. If the beta version of that model is displaying the same breaks in these diagnostics, then what that tells us is that this break is much more likely being caused by a change in the way markets are behaving right. rather than the way our model is behaving. Okay. So then that gives us a comfort level that the model is not broken, but then it makes us go and take a look at the market <laughs> to see if there is anything that has changed in the market. Right. Now, you know, 99 times out of 100, nothing has changed in the market. And again, you know, these distributions happen because you know, different things happen at different times and they get to build these distributions. Mm. And then, you know, they end up coming back and correcting themselves. Mm. However, if, uh, you know, in cases, we've had cases where we've decided to shut down a model or shut down a market because of this. So, for Mm. example, you know, looking at, I'll give you sort of a very uh, obvious example, but, you know, uh, trading Euro-Yen futures in Japan (laughs) is not really a good idea in a short-term trading model these days. Right, right, sure. <laughs> you know, uh, because something had fundamentally changed in the way that markets trade. Yeah. 
um, or for example, in you know sometimes in you know in a given model, if we start seeing breaks uh, from the beta, where the beta is behaving a certain way that's still sort of you know in our expectation of how it should behave given the market condition, but our model is not, then kind of goes on the operating table and, you know, we try to sort of dig deeper and we have no problem killing a model if we think it's, you know, it's not behaving as we thought it should. And anyway, to counter for that, what we do is we never, whenever we introduce a model, we never introduce it, you know, fully into the portfolio. So, you know, even um, after the model makes it to, you know, from the research phase into being into ready to go into the portfolio. It goes through three months of paper trading without any money. Sure. Um, if it survives that, uh, then another three months in the portfolio at a quarter weight, survives that, then another three months at half weight and so on. So it's not until, you know, over a year's time that we'll go into the portfolio at full weight. And even then, it's one of you know sixty or plus different. So it's uh, we do a very incremental approach to this stuff. Sure, 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 sure. It makes sense. Now, there's an intellectual side to drawdowns that we've just discussed, but there's also an emotional side. And how do you deal with drawdowns from an emotional side? How have you learned to? Well, look, detach? if your yeah. if your strategy. If you're, if nothing fundamentally changed in the market and your models are not broken, then a drawdown is the perfect place where you should double down. Sure. <laughs> now, uh, obviously, you know we don't do that. Sure. Look, um, in in being a money manager or a hedge fund manager or a CTA, ninety nine percent of the time, you're sort of you know your interests are aligned with your investors' interests. Mm. Um, where you know whatever uh, you do something that is good for you for your business and for your investor mm. a drawdown as you correctly mentioned is a very emotional issue and that's really the one time where i think managers including us do something that feels better uh, for the investor but probably not in the investor's best interest right which is cutting positions in a drawdown and reducing risk in a drawdown. Mm. Investors demand that you have some drawdown mitigation technique. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, within our fund, we have um, you know hurdles where if we hit X drawdown, then we cut the position by this much, sure. and if we hit Y, then we cut them even more. Which is, you know, I'll be the first one to say it: not the best portfolio decision. But it's a business decision, and it's something that investors uh, ask for. Yeah. Now, I'll also tell you that we have very large managed accounts uh, where investors choose that they don't want to do that. Right. That, no. Uh, so either they come and add themselves, or they ask us not to cut positions in a drawdown. Sure. But I would say the, the it, it takes a very astute... And an investor who really understands your strategy, yeah, uh, not to want that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, just a final question about sort of drawdowns and risk and so on and so forth. Is there anything that keeps you awake at night? Something that you worry about when you look at the way your program is designed and and your strategy and the markets and the way the world is today? I mean, is there something that you say? 
mm, I don't really want this thing to happen. That that you know, I'm not saying you're gonna lie. You 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 have sleepless nights, but <laughs> by by the nature of what we do, the bad periods for us are a bleed over time, and the good period are the big shocks. Mm. So if I were you know. Uh, a manager, let's say, if if, if I was managing uh, a hedge fund that is your typical long-risk hedge fund, I would certainly be very worried every night that, you know, one of a million different exogenous events can happen and I can wake up to a 20% loss. Yeah. Uh, that type of event can never happen in our strategies uh, because by definition, any exogenous type event like that will be hugely beneficial for us. Right. Um, we benefit from the sudden event that keep people awake at night. Um, and the way we lose our money is really not with any fireworks, but the lack of. Mm. Right. Uh, so it's sort of death by a thousand cuts, <laughs> uh, not explosions. Right. I actually, I, I might stay up at night hoping for an event like that. Not Maybe that's what keep you keep 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 you awake. The fact that nothing that can nothing keep me up at exactly nothing is happening. Uh, but uh, no, that's interesting. That's a good that's a good way of uh, of looking at it. Now, uh, just uh, sort of one other topic I just want to touch upon. I know we've already talked about it. It's a little bit about research. You know, investors, uh, they want us to do research, they want us to innovate, but they don't really want us to change. We have a certain profile and you've explained that when you do implement things, it doesn't change the overall profile. So that's that that I understand. Um, but I want to ask you a little bit about backtests, because, um, you know, when you do a backtest and when you finally come up with something that looks promising, it obviously looks good. That's the, the, the nature of the beast. But but things does not always work out as, as the backtest suggests. So how do you balance or how much weight do you put on a backtest or and, and what other things it could be intuition, I don't know. But what are the things that are important for you when you when you when you sort of make the final decision in saying, yeah, this model I really like and we should we should use that? Well, I mean, you can't really blame the back test. The back test <laughs> exactly. the back test is is just sort of, you know, what you put into it. Yeah. Uh, obviously garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, ninety nine percent of the work goes into you know, uh, happens before you go into a backtest. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, look, um, again, it's a continuum, uh, meaning if I take very simple strategy, that's um, 50, let's say 50 day breakout strategy, mm. uh, buy when, you know, when you break on the upside, reverse and sell when you break on the downside. And I put this into a backtest. Mm. It's going to give me what I believe is the highest confidence level backtest I can find. Yeah, this is. I mean, it's it's as pure a beta as you can find. Mm. Uh, even in that backtest, I mean, you know, it's still not going to cover uh, every market condition that can happen. So think of it very simply. Uh, again, going back to two thousand and eight, um, if you run that backtest, you know, um, up to two thousand and seven. 
you're going to have a certain risk return profile in it. Mm. But then you add 2008 to it, and all your stats is going to start you know, lighting through the roof. Mm. Although it would have been very positive and making money. But again, you know, it's not going to be true to the back test because it's going to make different uh, you know, uh, extremes. Yeah. Um, so if I think of this simple 50-day breakout strategy as, as one end of the spectrum, and then the other end would be the completely overfitted, <laughs> uh, you know, strategy that you know will give you the the four sharp. Yeah, exactly. But from day one, it it, it will never work. Yeah. Where you want to be is obviously a lot closer to the first one than the the, the second one. Mm. Um, so how do we do this? One is look. Um, you want to uh, think of the number of variables and parameters that go into your model as each one being inversely proportional to the number of degrees of freedom that you're putting into your model. Mm. With each additional parameter that you're putting, you are lowering the number of sort of the degrees of freedom that your model can have to react in different market condition. Mm. Uh, you know, again, taking it to the limit, put a thousand different parameters, you can get a model that never loses on right. a back test, but will have zero chance of winning. So sure. kind of that's, that's the first layer that you look into it. But then, even then, even with kind of lowering some of the parameters, you could always try to solve for the perfect parameter. And sometimes that perfect parameter is actually a singularity or close to being a singularity, where if you start deviating a bit to the left or the right, it completely breaks down. Mm. So you can you can easily fix for that by for each parameter you're looking at, making sure that you know any marginal change in that parameter value up or down by I don't know 25, 40, 50 percent is not going to have any significant effect on your portfolio. Meaning you're not really backfitting to that one exact parameter that made things work for this. There is sure. some level of comfort. So there are different techniques that you can do uh, that you have to do uh, before you get anywhere close to a back test. Mm. That again will ensure not that the back test is going to be sort of the, the holy grail but that it gives you a fairly good estimation of what your risk return profile should be. And again, it's subject to the, what the markets give you. Sure. Do you ever feel restricted in your research because you have this, I guess, objective of creating a, uh, you know, a program that does well, uh, kind of a pro portfolio protection type program, if I can call it that. And, and that obviously puts in some limitations, I would imagine. But did you ever feel restricted in, in your research saying, I'd love to put that in, but it just doesn't fit with well, my... Um, no, because we don't. Um, we don't we don't think like that. What okay. we do is, in research, we, we go wherever research takes us. And again, we try to achieve our negative correlation in Conquest Macro by doing a lot of asset allocation. Mm -hmm. uh, however, we also have another program called Conquest Star. Uh, Conquest Star, which stands for short-term absolute return, mm -hmm. is essentially um, a version of Conquest Macro with only the absolute return mandate. Right. Uh, it's a short-term, short-term uh, strategy that doesn't, you know, doesn't have 
performance and risk aversion mandate. Mm. So there are certain models we come up with that might go in conquest macro as, you know, uh, where we'd only turn them on in one environment or the other, but can go into conquest star as a full-fledged model. Mm. So we go where the research takes us then. I mean, again, going back to the concept of the Lego pieces, <laughs> you know, you keep building those Lego pieces as best as you can, and then you use them in making the different portfolios afterwards. Yeah, sure. I want to shift gear on you uh, again, Mark. I want to go to just a, a few things on, on sort of, a, I call it the business side of things. And then at the end, we'll finish off with some more general and, and, and fun stuff. But I just want to um, hear your view and opinion. I mean, on one side, you know, the markets have been challenging and, and, and therefore, uh, you know, many strategies have had a challenging time in the last few years. But there's also a business side to what, uh, you know, you do as a manager. And that's, you know, because you're an entrepreneur, so you're running a business at the same time. What has been your challenges as a business, uh, do you think? And and how is business? Well, look, obviously, um it could have been <laughs> it could have been a lot better. Uh, we're used to uh, being in the kind of space that we're in, which is uh, the trading world space. Sure. Um, and you know, uh, I would say that even though we have uh, strategies that do, uh, you know, we have funds that are ready to be launched and strategies that um, do well in risk-seeking periods as well, really our bread and butter is still coming from uh, the conquest macro side of the world. Right. Now, so when you're starting off with a strategy that really looks great only about 30% of the time and the other 70% of the time you're playing defensive, um, you're already used to some of these ups and downs. Right. Now, what makes this particular stretch more painful is just the length of it. Um, because in these six years uh, that we've been, so well, not six, but maybe what, since 09 or five, five years, uh, we should have had at least a couple of really nice moves into risk aversion, which we didn't have because of, you know, uh, the global central bank action. So it's been a particularly long period of drought. And look, um, I mean, let's be frank, a lot of funds like us have gone out of business. Sure. And uh, some other ones um, decided to change their strategy and do other things. Sure. We're lucky enough to have investors stick by us. Um, we're still around. Obviously, uh, we're not making uh, the uh, the living that we made in 2008. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Uh, but it's the nature of the beast. You know, yeah. sometimes you go through good periods and you go through bad periods. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm hopeful for is that I think um, this really this this massive compression and sell-off and vol and intervention and everything is setting us up for something that you know will rival 2008 if not worse mm. so i think whoever is left standing when we finally turn the corner on this um, will end up being in a very very good position you mentioned something which i think is interesting um and and, and the whole explanation about you know the businesses and it, it goes in cycles and so on and so forth uh you know uh, i don't want to put any uh, words in your mouth but 
you know, you probably could have retired a few years ago and not going through all of these phases. But so I'm interested in what motivates you, what keeps you going, what makes you want to come in every single day and do what you do. I can't think of anything else I would rather do. <laughs> That's one. Yeah. My wife would my wife would kill me if I spend my days at home. So I kind of have to leave the house. No, right. but uh, on a more serious note, look, it's uh, even even in its worst days, it's still the best job in the world. Right. Um, it's very dynamic. It's exciting. You know, things are you're all you know. You, things are moving all the time. You're, you're working in things from research to trading ideas to you know looking at the markets and how they, you know, how what you've done before is working. So it it fulfills you on so many different levels. Mm. Now you know, in in a, I mean, in a way, most jobs should do that. Uh, I think what this does is it. It has much higher highs and lower lows. Right. Um, so it's it's very addictive, but in a good way, I would say. <laughs> Do you remember how you got your first investor? Yeah. Uh, you know when uh, when I left, I told you I uh, partnered up with a friend of mine, sure. and um, I had gone from running, you know, this global group at UBS and. Um, and, uh, you know, having, you know, a huge team all around the world. And I remember me and, and my friend were sitting at, uh, you know, we rented a one-room office <laughs> on Park Avenue uh, that we just carved out, you know, a small conference room from it, just big enough for the conference room table. Right. But it was really a one-room office. And on a Friday night, I think it was, we were sitting and uh, building uh, uh, desks that we bought from Staples. <laughs> I didn't know that they don't come assembled. <laughs> right, right. So, and you know, it was that point, sort of, you know, sitting there, it's like, uh, am I sure I'm doing the right thing? <laughs> uh, sort of when it hits you a little bit. But yeah. no, we, you know, there's no doubt really about, uh, you know, that step. But look, we started, I put in my own money. Mm -hmm. uh, my partner at the time put in some of his money. Mm -hmm. And that's how we started. I think, you know, when we started, it was like, I think, $3 million or something. Right. And just through contact. I mean, look, I, I miss those days yeah. because back then, even in that one-room office, you know, we started trading with our own money. Uh, but pretty much we got any investor, you know, people at the time, and this is, you know, it's not so long ago. No, no, it's not. 1999. Sure. Um, you met with the people whose money it was. Yeah. And typically these people didn't care what your office looked like or how many people you had or what art you had on the wall. Mm. They came and they spent two, three, four hours with you. And if they believed in you and what you're saying, they gave you money. And if they didn't, then they passed. But there was no bullshit. Yeah, you know, it was uh, it was you know really about the strategy and about what you're doing. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't exist anymore now. Right now, there are so many layers in between you and the invest and the ultimate investor. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, whether, you know, there are many different professionals, like investment uh, due diligence people, and some, you know, some know their stuff, a larger majority of them doesn't. 
they come with a pre, you know, with a list of boxes they need to check, mm. uh, you know, without really fully understanding what is it that you do. So in a way, it was more fun before mm. and in a way easier. Yeah. And right now that sort of shifted from, you know, trying people investors really looking and delving into the strategy to right now, you know, more sort of the herd mentality where either, um, you know, the big funds get bigger mm. because no one gets fired, you know, for buying IBM sure. or, um, you know, you have to put in really outsized type returns for a year or two before, you know, and they come and they, they just, they buy the return again, without really understanding what caused those returns. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that's a perfect segue to my last question in this section. And that is really, you know, you've obviously been, you know, part of hundreds, I'm sure of due diligence meetings or, and, and, and answered, you know, thousands of due diligence questions, even though probably most of them are the same, but I want to ask you, what are the investors forgetting to ask? What are they not asking you that they really should be? You know, it's tough to answer that question because due diligence meetings now have stretched to that four or five hours. Yeah. And then not only investment due diligence, um, you have operational and you have legal and all that stuff. So I think most of the relevant questions are being asked. Uh, what I'm not sure, though, is what those, you know, what people are doing with those answers. Right. I think the, the questions are there, but I'm not as sure that someone is kind of processing uh, all the answers in the right way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, my own impression is, and that's one thing I, I don't know if I've ever been asked by someone coming and doing due diligence, and that's the why. I mean, they ask a lot of what and how we do things, but they never really ask why we do it. And I think that's missing because I think that's what, if people understood the why, they would have a much easier way to, uh, one, communicate it to the investment committee because usually the investment committee members are not really present anymore. Um, but just also generally to understand uh, the business as such because at the end of the day, the only thing that differentiates one manager from the other, it's the manager themselves. And no, so they, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, whether it's systematic or whether it's discretionary, it really boils down to the manager. I mean, yeah. I, in my mind, I don't see a difference um, between these things. Ultimately, it's the person. Yeah, which is also why I end up with this section called general and fun, because this is where, Mark, we really get to know you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm no. scared now. Yeah, you're scared now. That's right. No, 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 no need for that. No, I just want to ask. Your opinion. We've touched upon it uh, in different ways, but I, I, you know, there are many people listening today who maybe want to find out about what it takes to become a great trader and, and, and so on and so forth. So from someone who's done it over a long period of time, what would you say it takes today to become a great trader? What, what are the personal traits that, the, that you need to possess in order to achieve that? Well, first, Thank you for the compliment, but I wouldn't presume I'm there yet. So I'm still <laughs> looking with the rest of them. Sure. But I'll tell you, um, discipline. Right. Discipline is extremely important. Mm. You need to have not blind faith in yourself. One should always question what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But you really have to have the ability at tuning out the rest of the world around you mm. uh, to the point where 
you know, you're comfortable saying, yes, 90% of the people or 95% of the people are wrong and I'm right. Mm. It's not very easily done. <laughs> it <laughs> takes, you know, uh, to, you know, I don't know whether it's hubris or <laughs> what do you want to call it, or, you know, uh, too, thinking of you, too much of yourself. But look, it takes a real sort of combination in between having the right discipline to question certain aspects of what you're doing and how you're doing it, mm. but also the fortitude to stick to your guns. Right. You know, you you get so much unsolicited advice <laughs> <laughs> at the top and the bottom and, sure. and, and, and all points in between. Yeah. And you have to be able to really process the information without the noise sure. you need to start with some level of talent mm. but very importantly you need to be able to complement it by having the right people around you right you know successful traders are successful because they're good at what they do but also to a large extent they've surrounded themselves with people who maybe are better, even better than them at what they do. Uh, You know, I have no problem hiring people that I think are better than me. Yeah. It just makes the whole thing uh, more enjoyable. Sure. What, I mean, to keep the noise out, as you say, do you have any personal habits that you do that helps you do that uh, on a daily, weekly, monthly, whatever basis, uh, and that you would say has contributed to your own success? Well, look, I'm I'm really a trader at heart. Right. You know, I use quantitative techniques to uh, implement my views. Whenever those noises are sort of really loud, um, I <laughs> it, it's going to sound very strange. No. But I found it I find it very therapeutic and much more sort of um, calming to go back and look at the markets, look mm-hmm. at the charts, look at our stats, look at the models, how we're doing. It just It's a way for me to remember how much work we've put into what we're doing okay. and what we're doing to make sure that, um, you know, we're still kind of, uh, you know, there is, uh, we, you know, we believe that the models are still performing the way that we expect them to. Um, so it's, it's more of, you know, diving into deeper into the things that are causing sure. that pain at that moment. <laughs> uh, but if you've done your homework right from the beginning, it gives you a certain level of comfort. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in a long career, there's always going to be highs and lows. And there's always going to be things where you said, yeah, I did that well. And there's going to be things where you said, no, I didn't do that well. I failed at this. Is there anything where you could look back and say, you know, what your f- biggest failure have been and, and how you ended up overcoming it? Well, a couple. I mean, I can I can go on for a lot. Yeah, yeah no, no, most people can <laughs> I'll actually, choose, yeah. I'll choose the, the two big ones. Sure. Uh, if I could go back and do it all over again, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I would choose to be in a risk-averse strategy. Right. I think it's very important in a portfolio, but you inevitably end up being the person, you know, late at night in a party going sure. around and telling people to stop drinking because they're going to get a hangover. Yeah. 
that's a boring person. No one wants to hang out with them. <laughs> uh, it makes it a much tougher sell to yeah. do what you're doing. I mean, you know, I have the same skill set that sort of allowed me to do what we do here. I could have used it on the long side of things. Yeah. And I think it would have been a much, much easier path and probably financially a more successful one. Mm. Because what ends up happening is, uh, look, when when you're in a long risk strategy, you're making money when everyone is making, mm. but you're also losing money when everyone is losing. So sure. you share the highs with a lot of people, but you also share the lows with a lot of people. Sure. In what we do when things are you know, great for us is when they really are horrible for everyone else. So you can't even celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also... Uh, when you do your best, you know, in a year like 2008, you still end up suffering significantly because you become the ATM machine. Right. Uh, we've had, you know, we were up over 50% in both of our program in 2008, yeah. but still saw our assets being cut in half. Yeah. So that's one. And more, I mean, on a portfolio basis, you know, we've done a lot of things that uh, in retrospect, were not the best thing to do and we've undone them. Right. I think that's sort of part of why I think uh, today we have, you know, the best portfolio we've ever had. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because, you know, of all the mistakes we've made in the past and what we've learned from them. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's that's a good point. I've only got two more questions that I'd like to uh, ask you, uh, Mark, and that is, is there a fun fact that even people who know you don't really know about you that you can share? And I, I, I've had very varied answers. Uh, so anything goes here, I think. Fun fact. I have to think about this one. Uh, <laughs> my, ki my kids think I'm a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I, love, I love to do dangerous things. Right, okay. Uh, Which, Give me an example. What's the dangerous thing? Uh, rock climbing. Okay. Uh, flying a plane. Uh, jumping from a plane. Uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So there is a danger side to you. It's more sort of kind of, uh, you know, I wouldn't do anything that I think truly is dangerous. Right, right. I tend to be very risk averse when it comes to that. <laughs> But I think, you know, just looking at the probabilities, sure. uh, why people might perceive to be dangerous is actually, you know, fairly safe thing. Mm. Now, my last question, Mark, you know, uh, I asked you earlier uh, about investors not asking the right questions or failing to ask important questions. So I want to be, uh, I want to put myself in, you know, on the spot as well and ask you, What I failed to uh, to cover uh, today, I know that we can't cover everything, but is there anything that you think I missed and uh, that you want to to uh, bring up uh, before we we end to do justice to to yourself and and to conquest? I think um, you asked all the right question in the time that we had, which is you know uh, as as long as it has been. Sure. Uh, I'm sure we could have taken another <laughs> four or five hours and talked about the rest of the stuff. Sure. As you can see, um, you know, I'm I'm fairly passionate about this. So when I, you know, when I start talking, I uh, I can't stop in some cases. <laughs> but uh, no, I don't think there is anything glaring. Uh, but just by nature of how many 
uh, how wide ranging the topics we discussed, mm. each one of those we could spend another hour or two of on. Of course, absolutely. Uh, but that's not for lack of you asking the right <laughs> question, it's more of just timing. Sure, absolutely. Well, before we finish our conversation, uh, can you tell our listeners where they can best reach out to you and learn more about Conquest, please? Of course, our office is in New York City. Uh, we're Midtown, sort of hedge fund central. <laughs> our phone number is 212-759-8777. Uh, my email address is m as in Mary, H Malik, M-A-L-E-K, at conquestcg for capitalgroup.com. Um, if anyone has any question, comment, or uh, they can uh, feel free to send me an email and I'll either answer it myself or route it to the right person. Fantastic. And of course, all of these details will be in the show notes on the Top Traders Unplugged dot com uh, website as well mark so uh, i also want to say one other thing to the listeners and that is in the email that we uh, send out uh, there is going to be a little place uh, where you can just click to uh, to thank mark for for sharing his story and and his expertise and and uh, i encourage everyone to do so and i'll certainly be the first one to say mark thank you ever so much i think it's been Uh, you know, a great learning experience. It's been a great conversation, and uh, I appreciate your transparency and and your willingness to share these insights uh, about your strategy and your firm and the industry as a whole. So I really do appreciate that. Great, thank you very much. Appreciate your time and the listeners' time. And I hope we can connect at a later stage and see how things are progressing at your end, and maybe dive into some of the topics in even more detail than we did today. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you, Neil. Great. Bye Thank bye. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.